You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. Join me in your Bibles, if you would, in Jonah chapter 1 while you're finding your way there. Most of you, or a lot of you anyway, you know that uh, Calvin and I had the opportunity to go uh, to the Chiefs game yesterday. And what a great experience. Uh, Woo-haw, you-haw, wee-haw, whatever. Yeah, still kind of floating on cloud nine. cloud nine. So while we're there, of course, if you watch the game, uh, you know that uh, early on in the game, Patrick Mahomes went down with an injury. And I'm thinking to myself, the first thought that goes through my mind, oh my goodness, if something serious happens to this man, my first visit to Arrowhead, and they lose this game, they will never allow me back into this place. Or, worse yet, they might, like the sailors did with Jonah last week, offer me as a sacrifice to the gods. So thankfully, there's no such thing as a football god. And thankfully, uh, that didn't happen. But but we had a great time yesterday. And boy, I really am glad that the Chiefs won. And I I look forward to going back, hopefully, sometime uh, soon. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, Today, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1, beginning of verse 17. And we'll go down through the end of chapter uh, 2. So really, verse 17 belongs in chapter 2. But I'm not the one who made the, the chapter and verse division. Someone else did that, but really verse 17 belongs, should be verse 1 of chapter 2, but it's not the way it turned out. Jacob came up here and uh, read to us earlier uh, the passage from the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, as, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth uh, for three days and three nights. And I just want to point out to you at the outset, I said this in the first sermon in the series, but I just want to take the opportunity to, to say it again. When Jesus said that, he was affirming the historical accuracy of the event that we are reading about and going to be talking about today. So I I don't need to say anything more about that, and I'm not going to in the rest of the sermon. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. If you can believe in an all-powerful God who does miracles, certainly you shouldn't have any trouble in believing about a man being swallowed uh, by a great fish. So with that out of the way... I invite you to follow along with me as I read. So beginning in verse 17 of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. 
When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And all God's people said, Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that I have to stand here and to proclaim your word. And uh, just pray for myself in this moment, and I pray, Lord, that uh, you would just give me clarity of thought and mind and speech, that you would enable me to do the very thing that you've called me to do. I pray that you would allow me to preach in the power of your Spirit here today, and that I would rightly divide your word, and I pray for those who will be listening to the message today, if anyone needs to be... um, strengthened and encouraged, I pray that they would be. If anyone needs to be challenged, Lord, I pray that they might be challenged today through the preaching of this text. I pray all of these things in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. Well, it's no secret to any of you who have been here any length of time, you know by now, I grew up on the coast of North Carolina. I lived all of my life, as I like to say, up until uh, 12 and a half years ago. I lived all of my life within a quarter of a mile of the Atlantic Ocean. In fact, when I was a little boy, we could sit out on the back porch of our house and we could, we could look out and just see nothing but the ocean blue. It was really nice. It was a wonderful and great place to grow up. So I grew up on the ocean. I've told you before, I grew up surfing. I had a surfboard in my hand by the time I was 10 years old. And so whenever there, there were waves, you could usually find me in the water, in the ocean. And I don't know how much you know about the ocean, and I don't know how much you know about water, but maybe you've heard this before, that water is the most powerful force on earth. And I don't know if that's technically true or not, but, but I think it's true. And, and I think a lot of people, I've seen this before as someone who grew up on the ocean. I've seen tourists, they, they come to the beach, they, they sit down, they plop down on the beach, they look out, they see waves breaking out there, and they go, ah, oh, that's nothing. Those waves are small, and they really have no respect for the power of the ocean and the power of water. And so, and then invariably, they'll go out there, and, and those waves that they thought were, were really small and inconsequential, all of a sudden they get out there and go, wait a minute, these waves are much bigger than they looked from the beach, and, and they're much more powerful. There is a tremendous amount of energy in a, in a wave. So anyway, water is a really powerful force. I grew up surfing, and I remember on one particular occasion, I'm in high school, and then I went surfing with my buddies, and it was a pretty big swell. Pretty sure it was a hurricane swell, so there's a hurricane somewhere off coast, off the coast, and it's just sending these deep ocean swells. And these swells, when they come towards the coast, they're coming with a lot of energy. And then when they get to the beach, you know, then they stand up and, and they break and they release all of that energy. And so these deep ocean swells formed by storms such as hurricanes, they have a lot of power and they have a lot of energy. So we're out surfing on this particular day. The waves are big, 
powerful, a lot of energy. I take off on a wave, and what do I do? I, I wipe out. All right, so I, I tumble off the board, but I, I don't immediately go down into the water because these waves, when they're coming and they come into shallow water, they, they stand up like this. They draw all the water out from the beach, and so I tumble off the board, but then I, I get sucked up the wave like this, and then I go over the top and down, straight down. In surfing lingo, we call this going over the, the falls, like a waterfall. And you don't want to go over the falls. It's a very unpleasant experience. So that's what happened to me. I go right over the falls, and like a, a pile driver, just boom, it just takes me straight down to the bottom. And I hit the bottom. It's sand, thankfully, and not a, a coral reef. We don't have any of those in North Carolina, but, but it hurt. But when I get to the bottom, that really was just kind of the beginning of this negative experience for me. I don't know if you've ever been held under by a wave or been under a, a wave, a breaking wave at the beach, but the best way I can describe it is it's kind Kind of like being in a washing machine. I've never been in a washing machine, but that's how I would describe it to you. You're down there, I hit the bottom, but that I can't go back up. There's a lot of turbulence and, and it's holding me down. And, and I'm trying with all of my might to get back up to the surface, but I just can't because all of this energy is rolling over me and it's tumbling me around. It's dark, it's, it's pitch black, I don't know which way is up, and I don't know how long I was down there. Probably not very long, 30 seconds maybe, 45 seconds. I got to the point where I, I did begin to think, you know what, I, I might not make it. I don't know if I'm going to get back to the surface and be able to breathe again. I, I really did see my, my life flash before my eyes. Finally, thankfully, I was able, the, the wave passed me by and I was able to get back to the top. But that was one of the most helpless and hopeless feelings I've ever experienced in my life. And when I did get back to the top and I was able to breathe again, boy, I sure was thankful. So that experience that I just shared with you is something that we see here in this text. Jonah has a very similar experience. The last time we saw Jonah, if you will remember, he had been thrown overboard by the pagan crew of that ship. Remember, Jonah said, hey, if you guys throw me overboard, you know, the storm will cease and everything will, will go well for you. So that's exactly what they did. And so when they did that, the storm ceased above the waterline, and everything was calm for them. And, and what did those pagan sailors begin to do? Well, immediately they began worshiping Yahweh, and they began making vows to Yahweh, and they were expressing their, their gratitude to Yahweh for having been delivered from Yahweh's wrath. Well, as the narrative continues, the focus now returns to Jonah, the man who was just thrown overboard, and in a very real sense, the fury of Yahweh's wrath is just beginning for Jonah when he finds himself in the water. So you'll see in verse 17, the Bible says, and the, the Lord, there's the Lord again, all caps, Lord, that's Yahweh. We need to think of the great I am. We need to think of Jesus. And the Lord appointed a great fish. Well, what kind of fish? The Hebrew word here doesn't really tell us. It's not exact, okay? It's just kind of a generic term for a large oceanic creature of some kind. It doesn't really matter. It's large enough to swallow this man and to swallow him whole. So the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I want you to notice that word appointed, all right? That word speaks to Yahweh's sovereign power 
over creation. But I also want you to notice this. This word will appear again with great significance in chapter 4. In fact, it will appear three times in chapter 4. In chapter 4, we will be told that the Lord, Yahweh, appoints a plant to rise up and to give Jonah shade when he's out there pouting in the desert. Then the Lord will appoint a worm to eat that plant that he had previously appointed to give Jonah shade. Then the Lord will appoint a scorching heat to come and I guess perhaps punish Jonah. So this word will appear again in chapter 4 with great significance. But for now, we see that Yahweh appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. What is the purpose of this fish, we might ask. Some people believe that the purpose of this fish is to punish Jonah. Perhaps that's possible, and some people see it that way, but I prefer to see the fish in a different light. I think that the evidence points to the fish being appointed by Yahweh to rescue Jonah from the clutches of death. And more specifically, I think Yahweh appoints the fish to swallow Jonah after Jonah calls out to the Lord for help. Here's what I mean by that. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2. There, the Bible says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And so Jonah's thrown overboard. Then then we are told that he is swallowed by the fish, and then he begins to pray. And without any other information, if we would just leave it that way right there, it would seem as though Jonah is swallowed immediately after he is thrown overboard. Like, given no other information, it would read as if the sailors throw him overboard and then the Lord appoints a fish immediately to swallow Jonah. But the prayer inside of this fish reveals, I believe, a different story. Verse 2 says, Jonah speaking, I called out to the Lord. Right? He's in the fish now, but he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. This is in the past tense. Jonah is looking back from inside of this fish. He's looking back, it would seem to me, to his time in the water, his experience in the water. And oh, what an unpleasant experience it was. As we read through this psalm, and he's he's looking back to his time, and then he goes back to the present. We can tell it's a very unpleasant experience. In fact, the story reads as if Jonah may not even know how to swim. I don't really know. I mean, it doesn't say that, but he's obviously flailing around. You Imagine him flailing around in the water. He's trying with all of his might and all of his strength to keep his head above the waterline, but he can't. He just keeps sinking and going further and further uh, below. There's no life jacket. There's no one to throw him a lifeline. The, the pagan crew on board the ship, they're long gone now. They said, see you, buddy. We don't want anything more to do with you. You were the cause of that storm. So, so they, they've made it out of there. So he finds himself in distress in the water. So so what can he do now? To whom can he he turn to in his time of distress? Well, he says in verse 2 that he suddenly remembers now that he can call out to Yahweh, the one true God. He's the God to turn to in our times of need. That's what we learned last week. We talked about that last week. He's the God that has proven himself to be full of grace and and mercy, even towards rebellious sinners such as Jonah. This is who this God is. Over and over and over again, he proves himself to be a God of grace and a God of mercy. Now, remember last week, Jonah had the opportunity to call out to Yahweh. Uh, the, the captain of the ship came to Jonah and said, Jonah, w- wake up. How in the world can you sleep 
at a time like this, get up and call out to your God. And maybe perhaps your God will have mercy on us. This is a pagan sea captain imploring a Hebrew to call out to the one true God, and he didn't want to do it at that time. But now, when he's in the water, he sees no other choice but to call out to Yahweh. And so he finally does that. So now, another question we might want to ask and answer is this. What is it then that has finally gotten Jonah's attention? Why, Jonah, do you call out to the Lord now? Why didn't you do it when you were on board the ship? Well, you'll notice at the end of verse 2, Jonah goes on to say, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So let's talk about the word Sheol for just a moment. Sheol is... In my estimation, one of those really mysterious Old Testament terms. And it can have kind of a wide range of meaning depending on the context and how it is used. So sometimes this word sheol refers simply to the grave. Simply, you know, just a hole in the ground where you're going to place a dead body. Sometimes when you see this word in the Old Testament, that's what it means. Sometimes it refers to some murky underworld or the abode of the dead. But other times it refers to, in the Old Testament, the unwelcomed fate of the ungodly. Sometimes it refers to a place of divine punishment, a a place where people go who have been abandoned by God for eternity. And I think, church, that this third meaning is foremost on Jonah's mind. So get the picture, as Jonah is floundering in the water, He understands that he is as good as dead. He he sees his life flashing before his eyes in a very real sense. He's nearing the place of the dead. But as the rest of this prayer will make clear, I believe that Jonah sensed that his death would mean eternal abandonment from the Lord. That he would be abandoned from the presence of Yahweh for all eternity. Verse 3, Jonah says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He's describing the very same thing that I described to you earlier. My experience at the bottom of the ocean with that wave rolling over me. It's a very turbulent experience. It's not a pleasant one at all. But notice something else here in verse 3. You'll notice that he attributes his experience in the water to Yahweh. He says, Yahweh, you are the one who cast me into the deep. But all of you were here last week. You know that it was the sailors on board the ship who actually physically took him and picked him up and threw him into the water. But according to the words of Jonah here, these men were just human vessels in the hands of Yahweh. These guys were just doing Yahweh's bidding, and Jonah absolutely knows it. So as Yahweh had hurled the storm on the sea earlier, Yahweh was the one responsible for hurling Jonah into the sea. And Jonah's experience in the water, I believe, is a continuation of Yahweh's wrath. Look at what he says in verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So the first half of verse 4, again, is describing Jonah's experience in the water. He's in the fish. He's looking back at his experience in the water. And look at what he says. He said, when he's in the water, before he calls out to Yahweh, I am driven away from your sight. As he's nearing death, as he sees his life flash before his very eyes, he realizes something. 
Not only am I about to die, Jonah says to himself, but I'm about to be driven from Yahweh's sight. I am about to be abandoned by Yahweh to Sheol for eternity. That, that is the force, I think, of what he is saying. And I believe it is at that very moment that he cries out and is delivered. Now, the second half of verse 4 we go back to the present, Jonah in the fish. He says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Having been rescued, having been saved from Yahweh's wrath, having been saved from being abandoned for all e eternity, he now says, but, but thank you that you've rescued me, and, and I'm going to worship you once again at your temple. Now, verse 5 takes us back to Jonah's near-death experience via drowning. Verse 5 the waters closed in over me to take my life. He's flailing around. He's trying to keep his head above water, but he can't do it. He's sinking down below. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. As if drowning isn't bad enough, it would appear as though Jonah is describing a situation in which seaweed now is wrapping around his neck and choking the life out of him. This is not a pleasant experience that he is describing here. Verse 6, at the roots of the mountains. This is a metaphor, church. This is a metaphor for the, the bottom of the ocean. And, and we don't have to take it literally as if Jonah sank all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. I suppose it's possible. But understand this is poetic language. right? He, he's writing poetry here. And so he's driving home a point. that The use of poetic language to, is describing the torment that he is experiencing. Suffice it to say, he's sinking deeper and deeper and deeper in the ocean. Then he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is another way of describing Sheol. This is another way of describing abandonment from Yahweh. He understands that once he dies and once he goes to Sheol, that he's going to be there forever. That he's going to be abandoned by Yahweh for eternity. Beloved, I want you to understand something. The author of Jonah is giving us insight into the, law, the last words and thoughts of a man who's not only on the brink of death, but on the brink of spending eternity separated from God. And the use of poetic language here heightens, it's intended to heighten Jonah's experience so that we, the reader of the text, whether we be ancient Hebrews or God's people today, it's intended to heighten Jonah's experience for us so that we are drawn into his experience. And here's what I mean by that. I think the author of Jonah wants the reader to pause and to stop at this very moment and examine ourselves and ask the question, if this were me, if I saw death coming for me, if death was on my doorstep, if it was knocking on my, my door, what would be the final thoughts of my life? Think about that for just a moment, because I really think that's what the author wants us to do. Jonah's experience here as he's nearing death or he sees death coming for him is intended to give each of us pause and force us to wrestle with this question. And here's why I say that, church. I believe the author wants us to do this because as a Hebrew, 
Jonah would be predisposed to presume upon his eternal fate. I think it's fair to say that as a Hebrew, Jonah would be of, of the thought, well, I'm, I'm a Hebrew, I'm a child of Abraham, I'm a child of, of Jacob, I'm part of God's chosen people, I'm good to go, I've got my fire insurance for all eternity. You know, you know God would never, no matter what, God would never abandon me to Sheol for eternity. I think it's fair to say that, that Jonah would be predisposed to believe that about himself. And, and indeed, I think that's part of the problem, not just for Jonah, but for Jonah's people, the Israelites, to whom Jonah is a prophet. They were people who, were, who would presume upon God's saving grace. We're Hebrews. We're children of Abraham. We're God's chosen people. God would never, ever, ever abandon us. Meanwhile, let's ask the question, are they actually living like God's children? And the answer to that question is, no, they are not. At the very beginning of this series, we saw how, how Jonah prophesied at the beginning of, or during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And the Bible tells us that King Jeroboam II was an evil king. There are a lot of evil kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, but King Jeroboam II is one of them. In fact, he's one of the most evil kings, and he's leading the people of Israel to practice their own form of evil. We know this is going on. We know that these people are practicing idolatry. They're worshiping pagan idols, just like the sailors on board that ship last week. They're doing the very same thing. They have all of this going on. Not only that, they're facing a rising threat from their enemies, the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire is on the rise during the time of Jonah. They don't know. that Their nation, the existence of their nation is threatened by all of this. Then, of course, there's also the rise of the Babylonians as well. So they've got all of this that's going on. What are they doing? Are they trusting in Yahweh? No, it's quite the opposite. While they're living this way, Yahweh sends one prophet after another to them saying, worship me, put away the idols, worship me, trust me, serve me, call out to me, and I will save you. All this political upheaval is going on. Are they trusting in Yahweh to save them from their enemies? No, they're putting their faith and trust in, in politics and earthly alliances and earthly kings, and they're not or they're refusing to call out to Yahweh. And Yahweh says, worship me, call out to me, serve me, and I will rescue you. I, I think this is part of the message of the book of Jonah to the ancient Israelites. So they're claiming to be God's children on one hand, but they're not living like it. And church, I think this is why Paul says to the New Testament people of God in Philippians chapter 2, therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You can't read the New Testament without understanding how the New Testament writers want the New Testament people of God to avoid the mistakes of the Old Testament people. It's all over the New Testament. And I, and I think that's why Paul says what he says in Philippians 2. So I say all of that to, to say this. We must never, ever, ever, ever grow content and complacent in our walk with God. We should just never be at a place where we're absolutely comfortable because the moment you do that then perhaps you will become lukewarm and that's not a good place to be jesus says in revelation three sixteen, he says so because you are lukewarm 
and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says that to a church. He says that to, to Christians. And so, beloved, we must, we must renew our walk with God on a regular and consistent basis. We must never be the type of people who would presume upon our salvation, but rather seek to demonstrate the reality of our salvation. I'm not suggesting that we can earn our salvation. Certainly, we cannot. But understand this, how we live, the fruit of our lives, demonstrates what we really believe and who our God really is. Jonah and the Israelites claim Yahweh as their God, but they're not living that way. So Jonah goes on in verse 6 and he says, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. The pit here is, is another metaphor for Sheol. It's another metaphor for death. There's no need to take this literally as if Jonah actually died, although I suppose it, it's possible. But again, this is poetic language and it's intended to heighten Jonah's experience. You'll remember Jonah has been on a, a downward trajectory ever since God called him to go to Nineveh, and he said, no, I'm not going to do that, and he ran in the opposite direction. The text told us that Jonah went down to Joppa, then he went down to the ship, then he went down inside of the ship, and he went down to sleep, and then he wakes up, and he's eventually thrown overboard, and so he goes down into the ocean, and now we've just read how he goes down, 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 down. But now from the belly of the fish, we see that all of that has changed. And, and Yahweh has rescued him and has brought up his life from the pit. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. There it is. I remembered Yahweh. And my prayer came to you into your, your holy temple. So he's, he's about to die. He's about to lose consciousness, according to verse 7. And that's when he finally calls out to Yahweh. And the, the little blurb there about the prayer coming to him in his holy temple, I think that's just another way of saying that his prayer was favorably received. And so I think it is at that moment that the Lord then appoints the fish to come and not just swallow jo Jonah, but to rescue him. And so what we have here from the belly of this dark, dank fish is a psalm of thanksgiving a wonderful psalm of praise to Yahweh because Jonah understands. He's not only been rescued and saved from Yahweh's wrath, but he's been saved and rescued from being abandoned by Yahweh for eternity. Now notice what he says in verse 8. We talked a little bit about idols last week. We talked about how the sailors on board the ship, they were pagan idolaters, and they were calling out to their gods, and their gods were of no help to them. Remember all of that? But then when they called out to Yahweh, then they were rescued. So now notice what Jonah says in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I believe that Jonah now has learned, at least for the time being, the very lesson that those sailors on board the ship learned last week. That to call out to any other god is worthless, it's futile, because there is no other god, right? And when you call out to any other god, a false god, listen, listen to what he says. Those who worship them have no hope whatsoever of experiencing God's steadfast love. Steadfast love comes from a really beautiful Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is chesed, and I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but it's a beautiful word. And this word refers to God's loyal love. 
or Yahweh's loyal love. Or another way to say it would be Yahweh's covenant love. And Yahweh's love is indeed loyal. It really is. But to a point. And those who forsake Yahweh for idols, whether they be Hebrew, whether they be Gentile, what Jonah is saying here, anyone who would forsake Yahweh and worship idols, they lose all hope of experiencing Yahweh's ascent, His loyal love. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 24 and 28. At the very beginning of God's covenant with the Israelites, the Lord warns them. What will happen to you if you pursue false idols? He warns them, and we read, All the nations will say, What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord and went and served other gods and worshipped them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath. Yahweh's love for His people is indeed loyal. It is very, very strong. Some might even say that it's loyal to a fault. Like if we were to put uh, a human descriptor on this, we we would say, well, God, you're just enabling those people. You, You love them too much, right? That sort of thing. But his love is loyal. It really, really is. But understand this. This is what the author wants us to understand. Even though his love is loyal, it has a breaking point. My love is loyal. I love my children. But they can push my buttons sometimes. And they can see the wrath of dad. Right? I would never abandon you all, by the way. But it's the same point. Yahweh's love is very, very loyal, but it has a breaking point. And when it breaks, the only other alternative is Yahweh's wrath. That's it. So Yahweh's love does not abide upon those who abandon him for worthless idols. Those who forsake Yahweh for worthless idols, they will experience in full what Jonah has experienced in his near-death experience. Then he says in verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you What I have vowed, I will pray. This is the voice of someone who has experienced God's grace and God's mercy. This is the voice of someone who has been delivered from Yahweh's wrath. This is the response, church, that God is looking for from his people. Because as we saw last week, we have all been delivered from God's wrath. Those of us who are in Jesus Christ by faith. Somebody say amen. We looked at that last week. So what we see here in verse 9 is the response that God is looking for from his people. Gratitude, thankfulness, a resolve to worship him, a resolve to serve him. These are the things that should always follow once someone has received Yahweh's mercy. The problem with Jonah and the problem with Jonah's people is this, the Israelites. They have a history of being brought to the brink of Yahweh's wrath. And they, they repent and they make vows and they say, oh Yahweh, your mercy is great, your love is great, we won't ever do that again and, and we vow to worship you and to love you and to serve you. And they have this, this history of going through this, this cycle back and forth from repentance to, to vows to once again 
falling victim to idolatry and forsaking Yahweh. Eventually, his loyal love and his long-suffering will run its course, and it will turn to wrath. But for now, Jonah says, verse 10, salvation belongs to the Lord. The root word for this word salvation is the same root word for the name Jesus. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it wonderful? And yes, indeed, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Yahweh saves. In the same way, salvation belongs to Jesus, and Jesus saves. And as we saw last week, what does Jesus save us from? Jesus saves us from Yahweh's wrath, God's wrath. And in fact, when Jesus died on the cross as the propitiation, remember there's that $5 word that has no 50-cent replacement? That word means to appease the wrath of God. When Jesus Christ died on the cross as a propitiation, He cried out in deep anguish and in deep despair. Do you know what what were some of the last words of Jesus as death was knocking on His door? You all know them. Jesus cried out in agony saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus Christ knew in that moment when He was about to die, not only did He die there as a sacrifice on the cross for your sin, but Jesus Christ also understood that when He died and He went down into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, He knows that when He goes down into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, that not only has He died as a sacrifice for your sin, but He also knows that He is going to experience abandonment by God. Jesus Christ took that on upon Himself for you and in your place and in my place so that we might not have to experience that. You read, you just read everything, the torment that Jonah was experiencing. Jesus Christ experienced it really, and He did it in spades. And so He did it so you might not be abandoned by God for eternity. So what is the response to this great and wonderful truth? Well, maybe there's someone here this morning when I asked you earlier to think about, well, what would be your last thought? If death were coming to you, for you, and you you knew it, it was knocking on your door, you could just see it coming, what would be your last thought? Would it be like Jonah, if I die in this moment, I'm going to be abandoned by God for all eternity? If that's you this morning, what do you do? You do exactly what Jonah did in this story here. You call out Yahweh. You call out to Jesus You're saying, I believe that you died for me in my place and that you experienced abandonment, divine abandonment, so that I might not have to experience that for all eternity. And Yahweh, Jesus, He will save you because salvation belongs to the Lord. For the rest of us this morning, church, For the rest of us, those of us who have already made that decision, what is our response? Well, it's the response of Jonah here. It's to worship him. It's to serve him. It's to love him. It's to make him the center of your life, the center of your affection, 
in the center of your worship. And so maybe, perhaps you're a little lukewarm this morning. If that's you, make a vow to the Lord. No more, Lord. I aim to love you and to serve you with all my heart, soul, and mind. Then we close in verse 10. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not. But the Bible says in verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish. So again, the Lord is conducting all of this. And it, the fish, vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It's not a pretty picture, is it? Have you ever noticed that before? Vomit? I mean, vomit actually appears in the Old Testament quite a bit, and it's always negative. But that makes, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because, you know, I never really understand vomit in a positive sense. I don't know about you, but it has a very negative connotation. And it's really easy to just kind of read over that and go, well, yeah, of course, the fish vomited out onto dry land. But really? I mean, this is Yahweh who's directing everything that's going on here. He's appointed this fish. Certainly, he can appoint this fish to, to bring Jonah back onto dry land by some other means other than vomit him onto dry land, right? He can certainly do that. So, so why in the world would he have the fish vomit him on dry land? I don't know for sure. I, I'm kind of guessing here a little bit. But this little note seems to be a subtle message to Jonah, which is this. Stay humble, buddy. Stay humble. You've received my grace. You've received my mercy, right? Now, stay humble. What will Jonah do? Will he remain humble or will he go back to his prideful and arrogant ways? Well, you'll need to come back the next two Sundays to find out the answer to that question. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity uh, that I have to stand here and to proclaim the marvelous truth of your word and the marvelous truth um, of your grace and your deep and abiding love for us. And I pray, Lord, that the message today would have been encouraging to those who need to be encouraged, challenging to those of us who need to be challenged. But above all, Lord, I pray that we would just look to you and that we would see in you a God of wonderful love and wonderful grace and wonderful mercy, and that we would commit our lives to worshiping you and worshiping you alone and to serving you and to loving you with all our heart, soul, and mind. All of these things I pray in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. I invite you to stand, church. We're going to sing one more song. And it's a song of invitation, a time to respond if you so choose. And if you thought about that question earlier, what would be the last thought running through your mind as death was coming for you? And you had a similar thought to Jonah. Now's a great time to respond by calling out to Jesus and saying, I trust in you and I believe in you and I want your salvation. Whatever is on your heart, I would encourage you to come.